Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. A very good morning to you. This is Morning Shot. I'm Lin Lee. Top leaders from around the world gathered in New Delhi over the weekend for the Group of 20 or G20 Summit, a culmination of all the processes and meetings held under India's presidency throughout the year. Some key highlights, the African Union's entry into the G20 bloc, the G20 nations adopting a consensus declaration that avoided condemning Russia for its war in Ukraine, instead calling on all states to refrain from the use of force to seize territory. And with China and Russia's presidents both absent from the summit, U.S. President Joe Biden also sought to make the argument that the U.S. can act as a better partner for developing countries than China. Climate change and digital transformation, too, were among other key issues raised at the high-level meetings. For a deeper analysis, we're joined by Associate Professor Iqbal Singh Sevier, Director of Institute of South Asian Studies. A very good morning to you, Prof Iqbal. Welcome to the show. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on our show. Now, touching on the key issues that were raised, Russia's war in Ukraine, as well as the U.S.-China rivalry, what do you make of the level of cooperation given by the G20 nations on those fronts? Let's start with the consensus on the joint declaration. It was certainly a noticeable softening of the language around Russia's role in the Ukraine war compared to last year. Yeah, you put it um, rightly, softening of the stance compared with the declaration we had coming out of Bali last year. Now, if we look at the joint statement that was issued, they, as you rightly pointed out, they have denounced the use of force for territorial gains. They've even um, raised the issue of human suffering. But Russia is not mentioned in this declaration at all. And so it presents a situation in which one can both states in the West and Russia can draw positives from it in that sense. So it doesn't resolve any um, conflicts or position itself in that way. But what it does is it prioritizes the need to shape a consensus of some sort that can bring a, a joint statement. And that was the priority going into these two days, the last two days of the, the G20, or the, the two days of the G20 summit itself. Well, well, the consensus came as a surprise, wasn't it? Uh, considering the unwillingness of many leading countries in Africa, Asia and Latin America to stand with NATO over the war in Ukraine. Precisely. Um, not only was it a surprise in itself, it was additional surprise that the statement was, was already uh, worked out on the first day of the summit itself. Normally one anticipates that this will be fought over and uh, grind its way to the end of the second day of the summit, etc. But this was worked out and we, we know that uh, there have been um, a lot of work going into this declaration because there have been concerns about there not being a declaration that mm. could be agreed upon. The other thing, if I could add, is that if one looks at this joint statement, it's, it's impressive in the sense that it, um, it's a very, what one would describe as a clean declaration. There are no notes, there are no footnotes, there are no sort of points of mm. subtle dissension, etc. So, you know, a lot of work had gone into the phrasing, the um, use of certain terms, to avoiding the use of certain terms, etc., Okay, let's talk about uh, other key takeaways uh, in terms of the Africa Union's entry into the G20 bloc. What do you make of that? Well, you know, this this is important for the future of the G20 itself. If we look a little in a broader sense beyond just the India's posting of this summit itself, because the African continent has not only a number of states, but a number of states whose uh, economies are going to be increasingly important in the next mm. few years. But there are also a number of states who are suffering with debt crisis issues as well. So the entry of the African Union is fundamentally important for 
the revamping of the G20 to make it a more representative forum, but it also is fundamental to solving the issues that uh, that the world is grappling with and will continue to grapple with. But there's also another issue um, in Tilandia, which is very important, I think, is that there is a concern in the US, but also in India, about China's influence in the African continent. Mm. And this is through the BRI project, but also through the fact that China has been um, an important lender for many other countries in the developing world. So in a sense, this is not just about expanding the G20 and making it a forum that will continue to be relevant, but also about India's taking its own leadership position Mm. in the global south. And this has been a major theme in the year-long activities of the G20 that India has hosted, but also for the US to reposition itself with regards to this issue. Yes, uh, talking about the Global South, I, I suppose the Global South's position in the talks helped prevent the agenda from being overshadowed by Ukraine. And as you were mentioning about India's position, do you think that is asserting its position using this summit as an important global power? And what is your assessment from what you've observed of how India is engaging with the major powers like China and the U.S.? Well, this G20, I've been going for a number of the events related to the G20 over Mm -hmm. the last year. It's a major branding exercise for India, both domestically and and overseas as well. And it's generally presented as a reflection of India's position on the global stage. And this is something that the current Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi takes very seriously, the projection of his position globally, but also position of India, etc. And linked to this is the issue of the global south, that, you know, India is a player in the world that can influence developments in the global south, but it can also represent the global south elsewhere. Yeah. And as, as you know, that this is within a specific context. If you look at China's position in the G20 itself, The thing is that President Xi Jinping didn't come for the G20 in in India. And um, this is the first G20 meeting he's actually missed. This is a forum that he's he's prioritized in the past. And this is a reflection of the US-China tensions, but also India-China issues as Mm -hmm. well. India is pushing it forward as a reflection of its own position on the global stage. And for the Chinese president, it, it's not exactly in his priority to, to highlight India's position on the global stage <laughs> itself. Under India's year-long presidency, a lot of the discussion was centered on loans to developing nations from multilateral institutions, as well as reforming international debt architecture. Now, given that almost 40% of the developing world is facing a severe debt crisis, how urgent is it for the world to rethink existing international financing structures? Well, this, this has been an ex- incredibly important issue. And the, 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 the discussion about this has actually predated India's presidency of the G20. But what India did was it actually, if I can use the term benchmark, it, it benchmarked the debt crisis as an issue that had to be dealt with during its presidency. And this is also a fact that we are coming out of COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic that has further impacted these countries that were already um, reeling with debt. So some of the things that were highlighted going into the presidency by India itself was the need to reform multilateral banks uh, or multilateral development banks to recapitalize um, these financial institutions, but also to restructure debt arrangements that were suitable to the countries. If I may also add here, right, this issue is also not just about the current debt that countries are struggling with. It's also linked to the issue of green transition, which is fundamentally important to the G20's agenda. So developing countries need assistance to facilitate their green transition. While we know in COP 2009, there was held in Copenhagen, the developed world agreed to put forward 100 billion worth of loans a year. By 2020, this didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So when the developing world accesses loans from uh, multilateral banks, 
they get this at higher rate or equal to market rate or higher than market rate. So, essentially, the developing countries pay more for their green transition than developed countries. So, the issue of reforming these banks, it's not just about the debt, but it's also about the future green transition. And so, this reworking of financing mechanism is something that has been incredibly important and placed front and center. And as we know, if you look at the joint statement, there has been agreement to build, I believe the terminology was better, bigger, and more effective multilateral development banks. But there's a lot of focus on the World Bank as well. And India, the US and the EU have accepted the need to expand the capacity of the World Bank to actually loan. But also the fact that the World Bank must be more targeted in its approach towards funding and debt restructuring as well. You know, when we look at these um, negotiations on climate change, etc., we have to pay attention to, to terminology itself, right? For, for long, we've taken terms like clean energy as face value, but what do they mean? Do we, where do fossil fuels fit into these issues? As we move forward towards taking issues like green hydrogen more important, um, we have to pay attention to these issues. But I would say that perhaps where we should look at now, I mean, given that there was no agreement on this fossil fuel mm-hmm. issue, is the issue of this financing and the green transition issue. I think that's where perhaps we can find some green shoots, if I may mm-hmm. use a very bad pun. And just bringing Singapore into the discussion here, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong also talked about the need for governments to catalyse private capital in order for the world to be net zero by 2050. On that front, what kind of role do you think a small country like Singapore can play in the larger G20 ecosystem? Well, it's important to realise that Singapore brings a, a perspective from not just itself as a smaller country, but Singapore is also the convener of the Global Governance Group Mm. in the United Nations, or the 3G, which allows Singapore to actually convey the perspective of, I believe, 30 small and medium-sized members at the G20. So it sort of provides a bridge between the G20 and the wider United Nations membership in that sense. But the other thing is Singapore is also very well-placed to pitch certain ideas, but also to bring in the capacity-building aspects of this as well. Now, one of the things that India laid great emphasis on in this G20 was the need for digitization, digital connectivity. And this was, this was pitched as a very important means of bringing inclusive development across the globe. And there was a lot of talk about global digital public infrastructure and digital connectivity between countries. Now, Singapore plays an important role in this regard. And if you just look at the fact that Singapore's pay now system has been mm-hmm. connected with India's UPI system, this is a model for cooperation, etc., that, that can be pitched and developed further upon as well. And Singapore also um, has consistently emphasized the need for economic connections. This is something important in today's world when there's talk about protectionism in some countries. But also Singapore has been a strong voice about the importance of state sovereignty and multilateral uh, frameworks. Prof Iqbal, there were reports that Delhi flattened its slums as the city decked up for the summit. We understand you've been visiting Delhi for related meetings on G20. So what are your first-hand observations and reading of how the city prepped for the summit? And were there also economic benefits that came along with it as well? Yeah, well, you know, during the summit, parts of Delhi were shut down. But for the past, I would say, months, I've been observing how they've been sprucing up certain parts of the city, but also closing off certain parts of the city. Both of them sort of went hand in hand. And we know that this involves moving thousands of homeless people out of city into uh, shelter homes for the time being, but also blocking off parts of the city, etc. Now, this has caused some discomfort among traders whose shops had to shut, etc. And some of them had to refurbish their shops leading up to the G20, etc. But the thing to note about the G20, India has gone into this in a huge way. And the G20 for India was not just about these two days of the summit. It was a year-long affair. 
meetings were held all across India. Had the opportunity to to go to various parts of India. Mm-hmm. Some parts I'd never been to before as well. And so, when the G20 meetings were brought to various parts of of India, there was some infrastructural development in areas that it was brought to. But I also noticed in my travels for the G20 events was that there was actually a major effort in various parts of India to promote tourism to mm. local cities and states. So that was packaged in with this. So we have to see this in the broader scheme of things that they've been doing over the year. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives with us this morning, Prof. Iqbal. Such a pleasure to be with you. Have a good day. Thank you. We've been speaking with Associate Professor Iqbal Singh Sevier, Director of Institute of South Asian Studies. This has been Morning Shot. Stay with Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.